from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. So hear the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sir, uh, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made the distinction among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the, those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are, you, are not the rich the ones that oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, which is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. For you do not commit adultery, but do murder. You have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment. And because of that, there's no fear when we see that we're in sin. There's no fear when we see that we need mercy. And so, Lord, may we come to you today with open hearts, trusting uh, that you will forgive us of our sins and you'll lead us to the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And we pray that you would do that in a, a, a powerful way today. I pray that you would set your servant aside, Brandon, uh, to bring us your word, and our hearts uh, may be cultivated to receive it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the Old Testament, uh, there is a story. It's a true story. And it's the story of when God decided that Israel needed a new king. You see, Saul was out. And so God... He called up Samuel and he said, hey, I want you to go see Jesse and I will reveal to you which one of his sons will be the next king. So how exciting must this have been for Jesse? Like what a, what a blessing and an honor from the Lord. And I, I believe that he knew in his heart who God was going to choose. And so he, he proudly put his eldest son forward, Eliab, and Eliab presented himself to Samuel, and he was tall and strong, and there was something about him that must have been kind of regal or a commanding presence, because when Samuel saw him, he thought to himself, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But God said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So this happened six more times. Jesse kept bringing out sons, thinking they would be the one to be chosen by God, and God kept telling Samuel one after another, that's not the one. That's not the one. I think these two men were probably bewildered and confused by what was happening because uh, Samuel had to ask Jesse when there were no more sons to present. He said, are you sure you don't have any more sons? And Jesse's like, well, there's one more. But I was certain he wasn't the one, and so we, we didn't even bring him. We left him behind to tend the sheep. When David presented himself to Samuel, God told him, arise and anoint him, for he is the one. Now, Jesse and Samuel, I think, were both godly men. I think they were probably wise. And I bet you that if you asked the people who knew them, they would say that they were probably, generally, pretty good judges of character. And yet, they could not see what God sees, and they could not know what God knows. And I told us this story this morning because I think it's a good reminder for us. Because as people who want to see real positive change in this world, we find that we're often having to make decisions on how to spend our time and how to use our resources to meet the needs of others. And as we learned last week, if, if we want to have a religion that is pure and undefiled, that's what it's about. It's about serving and helping others. Remembering that we cannot see things as God sees things is crucial to helping us make these decisions in a wise way. I think that James understood that we have a tendency to make value judgments about people when we're deciding who gets the benefit of our efforts. And in today's passage, we see that there's a wrong way and there's a right way for us to do that. So first, let's look at the wrong way. The wrong way is called partiality. James 2.1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. See, this begins with a warning against partiality. We could call it favoritism. This is something that we encounter as we go about our Christian walk. And James gives us an example of what it looks like. He tells us a little story about two men who both come to a church service and they're, they're both new there. One of them is dressed well and he is wearing expensive jewelry and the other is dressed shabbily. And on the outward at least, it's obvious that one is wealthy and one is in poverty. And to the wealthy one, they welcome him warmly and they say, here, have this seat of honor. And to the poor one, they say, why don't you stand in the back? But if you want to sit, you can sit on the floor. Now, I, I wish I could stand up here and say that in the church today, these kind of things don't happen anymore. But I think the, the hard reality is that uh, we do 
see that wealth and the appearance of success, they, they get mixed up in how we relate to one another in the church. In some churches, it's, it's common for large donors to be given preferential treatment to have undue influence over matters of the church. And people who are seen as successful in the business world, those men and women are often the first ones chosen to serve on important committees. And those men are the first ones to be nominated as officers. In some churches, especially in urban settings, they go out of their way to make sure that the undesirables can't come in. They put up barriers to homeless people being allowed into the church service. And this concerns us because, frankly, the building that we're so excited to move into, well, it's in a part of town where there is a great diversity of socioeconomic status. And it's the desire of my heart, and I know it's the desire of the heart of the staff and the elders that that we would not only be a welcoming church, but that we would be attractive to all different types of people. (laughs) And yet, I think we have to be wary of the temptation of the sin of partiality creeping in on us. When we encounter people who are a little bit different than us, or a lot different than us, when we encounter people who don't quite fit into the mold that we're used to, when we encounter people who make us a little bit uncomfortable, we're going to be tempted to be partial. And partiality is not okay. It's very clearly a sin. James points out that when this kind of thing happens, we are making distinctions among ourselves and we are becoming judges with evil thoughts. What does it mean to make distinctions among ourselves? This this maybe could be better translated as being inconsistent in our heart. We don't treat others consistently. Some we give favor to freely and others not so freely or maybe not at all. And we make ourselves judges with evil thoughts. It, this means we're, we're making a judgment about the value of a person. And we're doing it with either wrong motives or using the wrong standards. Or both. And really what we're doing is we're assuming God's position. Jesus is the one on the throne and yet we crawl up onto His throne and we use faulty world standards and then we apply them inconsistently. I don't think it was a mistake that James began this passage by referencing Jesus as our Lord and specifically as the Lord of glory. Because see, Jesus is Lord over everything. And that includes what brings glory to God. Or in other words, what has value in His kingdom. The worldly standard is for us to treat people like commodities. We look at people and we say, what do they have to offer me? What do they bring to the table? How 
How are they going to further my mission or my cause? That's how we determine their value. But the biblical standard is that we recognize that every single human being is an image bearer of God. Simply because they are made in God's image means they are of extreme value. And this isn't just pretty words. These aren't just poetic expressions. There is a real value that is added to our lives when we encounter and embrace those who have little value by worldly standards. With my rich friend, when we go to lunch, even if he never picks up the check, there's still a benefit to me of having him in my life. And my poor friend, when we go to lunch, even if she never picks up the check, there's still a real benefit to me just from knowing her. Remember last week we learned that when we're obedient to the law, when we are doers of the Word and not hearers only, this means that we visit those who are marginalized, those who are in need. It says we're blessed in the doing. That's what we can expect. And this actually frees us to be real and genuine with people. To have real relationships with others. You know, someone invited one of their neighbors to a group that I attend. A, a group of um, men. We meet on a regular basis. And to be honest, it was uh, this person was kind of a challenge for me. He's a little rough around the edges. I, I never know what to expect when I meet him. In fact, the, the first time we had an encounter, I inadvertently said something and he, it set him off and he left angry. My friend, though, is in relationship with him and, and he came to our group and he said, hey, can, would it be okay if we still include him? Because you see, he's in need. He's lonely. He's investigating the things of faith and he needs godly men around him. I tell you, inside of me, that sin of partiality just rose right up. I wanted to say, no, he's a distraction. No, he's ruining what we're trying to do here. No, I don't see the value in having him in my life. I felt the Spirit stir within me. God said, this man is made in my image. And the Spirit whispered in my ear and said, you don't see with the Lord's eyes. And so I repented. I wish I had a, a tidy, happy ending to put on this story, but it's still kind of in progress. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what God's going to do, but I'm trusting in His promise that as I'm obedient and as I repent of this sin of partiality, that I will be blessed in the doing as we minister to Him. You see, there's a, there's a personal ramification to all of this. Two weeks ago, Ryan preached that we're more than simply what we produce. Right? But we have a hard time believing this truth. 
when I make a practice of, of viewing others and seeing their value separate from what they're producing, when that becomes my regular way of doing things, it gives me a better perspective on how God loves me, on how God values me. In Genesis 9, God told Noah that if anyone kills a person, then they should be put to death also. The extreme ultimate penalty. And God only gives a simple and basic reason why it justifies that, and it's this. God made people in His own image. This is after the flood. This is long after sin entered the world. This is long after the image that we have inside of us was tarnished by sin and, and death in the world. And yet God still sees it as extremely valuable. He still sees each and every one of us as valuable. I think some would argue that that value is to varying degrees, though. We, we see verses like Romans 8.29. It says that believers are being conformed to the image of Jesus. And Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 points out that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. See, Christ in His humanity was just like us. He was made in God's image. He's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. But in His divinity, He is the perfect image of God. Untainted by sin. Because Jesus never sinned. And Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is conforming us more and more, day by day, step by step, into His image. And this is a lifelong process for us. We will not be perfected until Christ comes back. And undoubtedly, some of us are further along in this process. Some of y'all are faster learners than I am. And some of us have just been at it a lot longer. But whether or not that makes us more valuable in the kingdom, God only knows. I don't see how we could possibly know that. But I don't think it's bad that we ask the question. I, I, I look around and I say, okay, there's no church that has unlimited resources. There's no individual who has unlimited time and treasure to give to all the need in the world. And so, in a way, it seems like prioritizing those people who would be of most benefit to the kingdom, in a way, it seems like wisdom, right? To prioritize those people. We say, man, if only we had her talent up on stage. Think of all the people we could reach. Or what if we had his charisma in the mix and all the people that would be drawn to him? Or what if we had her resources? her financial support. Think of all the good that we could do in the world. It sounds like wisdom. But James points out, just like God whispered to Samuel, that the Lord sees not as man sees. 
reality is not always what we think it is. In verse 5 it says, Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? And in verses 6 and 7 it says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, let's be clear. James is not saying that all poor people are rich in faith, nor is he saying that all rich people are automatically enemies of God. What he's pointing out is that when we're determining who we should focus our ministry efforts on, using the appearance of wealth or our knowledge of someone's wealth, that's really, really an unreliable method. Because only God can see people's hearts. Poor are often rich in the very things that we as Christians should greatly prize. And unfortunately, the rich sometimes use their wealth and influence to further their own agenda instead of God's will for the kingdom. These are things that the Lord sees clearly and immediately and that we often miss until it's far too late and damage has already been done. But there is a kind of wealth that matters. Spiritual wealth. Jesus, the Lord of glory, is the key to understanding this. John Stott put it this way, are we putting the Lord's glory first in our scale of values or are we, all the time or from time to time, allowing ourselves rather to be led by the standards of this world as to what is worthy or worthwhile? You see, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And Scripture talks a lot about the richness of the glory of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 8-9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. When sin was brought into the world, we were made very poor indeed. We became children of the devil who has the power over death and who is able to blind us from seeing the glory of Jesus. We were separated from the very God in whose image we were made. But Jesus drew near. And He desired to make us rich again. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 3, starting in verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not even realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. And as we read last week in Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love for which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And raises us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages He might show us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness in Christ Jesus. We were blind and now we see. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said let light shine out of darkness when He first created us in His image has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, we can see that through the glory of Jesus Christ who died for us so that we might live, we've become immeasurably rich in His grace. And this is really the only standard that makes any sense when determining the value of someone within the kingdom. And yet, it's not measurable. And that's what we mean when we say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. God shows no partiality. So we've seen that all people have extreme value simply because they're made in God's image. And we've seen that believers are immeasurably rich because of the glory of Jesus Christ. But where does this really leave us, right? How do we prioritize our ministry efforts? And that takes us to the right way, which James called the royal law. He talks about it in verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. He's creating a, a juxtaposition. The the opposite of partiality is the royal law. That is, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And the royal law, that, that simply means it's the law of the king, King Jesus. The, the royal law says that whenever we see need, we have an obligation to give that person the same love that we would lavish on ourselves. So when we're hungry, we feed ourselves. And when we're naked, we clothe ourselves. When we're in danger, we find security. And when we're exposed, we find shelter. When we're sick, we go seek treatment. And when we're tired, we rest. The partiality is when we select the people to whom we're going to give this love based on any criteria other than they're in need. The fact that they are in need is enough for us. James goes on to give us kind of a brief lesson in the cohesion of, of the law itself. And, and we've kind of covered this in our previous series called Law and Gospel. I recommend you Listen to it if you haven't heard it yet. In this, Jesus taught us that the greatest commandment in the law is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, all the prophets. The royal law is simply referring to the entirety of the law. And James says that 
fulfilling the royal law means that we speak and we act as those who will be judged under it. He refers to it as the law of liberty. Now Satan would have us believe that that's an oxymoron. The law of liberty. He says it's too restrictive. But it's a lie from Satan that when we keep the law, it makes us miserable and unhappy and depressed under the ridiculous, impossible standard of God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Think about it. The law was given to God's people when? Right after they were set free from bondage in Egypt. God was not looking to enslave them anew. At that time, God said this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. The law of liberty was given for our good. It's it's the guide for how we live well within the confines of freedom. Because when we don't, we fall back into bondage in sin. And then God goes on and He gives a description of His very character. In Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 17, God says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, and He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and He loves the sojourner, giving Him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Remember how we said that glory is seen in the face of Jesus. Jesus embodies this perfectly. He showed no partiality. He died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still dead, while we were still poor. And He takes no bribe. We cannot buy our salvation. We cannot earn it through our own efforts. His mercy is the free gift of God. And Jesus was all about the marginalized people, the orphans, the widows, the immigrants. If we would follow the Lord Jesus, this is John Stott speaking, if we would follow the Lord Jesus, then it must be our glory as it was His to be incessantly and preponderantly on the side of the poor, the underprivileged, the disadvantaged, and the oppressed. James, just over and over again, he keeps calling us to action on behalf of the marginalized. How can we claim to be followers of Jesus if we're not doing what He was all about? Now I know this is easier said than done. We haven't really answered the big question. We, we know that uh, we cannot show partiality. But we accept that to follow Jesus means that we have to be about ministering to the poor, but there's still a reality that remains. 
there's more need out there than we can possibly manage. So how do we discern what it is we're to be about? Well, I have three quick ideas. The first is we need to be aware and remember that there is a Lord of the harvest. Jesus told us in Matthew 9.37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. And then immediately following this, Jesus sent out the disciples and He gave them explicit instructions on where to go and what to do. Jesus may call you to something or someone or somewhere specific. When we are aware of needs, our duty is to pray earnestly that God would provide laborers to minister to them. And if He calls us, we need to be prepared to obey. And if He sends someone else, we need to be prepared to respect that decision as well. That brings us to the second point. We need to not judge others in their calling. See, the Lord of the harvest is not going to call every person to the same people. Some people will be called to inner cities and some will be called to the suburbs. And some will be sent overseas. I once had a friend. She told us that uh, she was being called by God to Maui in Hawaii. We all kind of kidded her about it. I think she actually had a hard time raising support because people didn't think it was a real calling. But it was. She was working at a school that was ministering to native people. It was spreading the gospel and meeting real needs in that community. But we're kind of quick to judge other people's callings. And sometimes we're quick to judge those who don't share our specific calling. Sometimes God gives us a burden for a particular place or a particular group of people. And then we find it difficult when we look around and, and we, we see that other people don't seem to care as much or other people aren't as willing to get in and get their hands dirty alongside of us. Well, we need to be careful that we're not judging Others, simply because the Lord of the harvest has directed them to go somewhere else. Romans 14.4 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. But the last point is that we all must be involved. None of us kind of get off the hook. There's a time for everything and there's a variety of reasons why God may not be calling us specifically here or there. Yet, we should continue to be burdened. We should continue to be greatly concerned with the needs of the marginalized. Even if we're not the one to go, we can support those who do. That's how the body of Christ works. Sometimes, that looks like prayer. Praying diligently for those who are in the field. Sometimes it might look like sending an encouraging note. Sometimes it might look like financial support. James 
He's good at keeping us constantly reminded of our need to be concerned with mercy ministry. And I think this is a good thing. But we have to remember that Jesus is the one on the throne. And He ultimately determines our steps. And that means that we have freedom. Because we don't have to be overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of the neighbors who are in need of help. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says in uh, verse two or chapter two, verse thirteen: "For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment." First, it sounds a little scary. Judgment is without mercy. But I don't believe that James penned this final verse as, as, a, as a warning or even as a way of kind of guilting us into uh, caring about mercy. But just a few verses ago, James was explaining to us about the mirror. He understood that as we wrestle through this passage, we'd arrive where we are right now. we would come face to face with this reality that we have not shown mercy to those who are in need. We've turned away. We've not cared when we're supposed to care. And even when we did show mercy, we didn't do it well. We did it imperfectly. James knew that as we looked at this, as we felt the conviction of the Spirit, we would know that we fall short of the glory of God. This is the reality we all face every time we look into the mirror of the law. But he reminds us of the good news. Mercy triumphs over, just, over judgment. Because of our sin, God has every right to judge us as guilty. But because Jesus lived a sinless life on our behalf, and because Jesus died paying the penalty for our sin on the cross, because of the work and the life of Jesus Christ, God gives us mercy. And this is a free gift. We don't earn it by being merciful to others. That doesn't work. The gift was given to us without any partiality. But when the truth of what Jesus has done for us has truly taken hold, we can't help but respond with obedience to His Word, this law of liberty. And so the mercy that we show to others, however imperfect and inconsistent it may be, that's the evidence of the mercy that has been shown to us. What a triumph! Over judgment, that is. What a triumph indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that You would make us a merciful people. Lord, I pray that the, the words of James would penetrate into our hearts and our minds this morning that we would be uh, perseverant as we look into the mirror. Lord, I, I pray that as we move into a new neighborhood as a church, as 
more and more opportunity is presented to us, as more and more people in need are presented to us, Lord, I pray that You would make us a people who do not turn them away. Lord, I pray You would help us to become comfortable being uncomfortable. Lord, I pray for the protection and the safety of our body, but Lord, I pray that we would risk things boldly for the sake of Your kingdom. And Lord, I pray ultimately that Your mercy would continue to triumph over judgment. That we would continue to grow and deepen in our understanding of what You have done for us. And that that would spur us on to doing the work of Your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.